It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 401 for July 13th, 2014. Oh look, Friday the 13th came on a Sunday this month. This week, although Muse is only two years old, Adobe has already rewritten it. And it shows. The Onion Router could interest you if you want to keep your actions on the internet more private. In short circuits, tablets are poised to roar into the lead. Watch out for domain service messages. Some of them offer something you don't need. And if any Microsoft applications or operating systems puzzle you, there's a free ebook for that. You know, sometimes I write off the first release of an Adobe product as not being particularly worthwhile. I did that with version 1 of Lightroom. Well, at version 5, it's indispensable. And I seem to have made the same mistake with version 1 of Muse. You know, it seems somebody at Adobe is familiar with the old Greek gods and goddesses. The Muses are the goddesses of the inspiration for literature, science, and the arts. It never hurts to have a muse on your side when you're trying to accomplish something, and Adobe Muse, I think, is going to be a hit with website developers. But wait, Adobe already has Dreamweaver. So it's tempting to think about positioning Muse as the lightweight Dreamweaver. That would be wrong. Muse is a website development tool for people who are visually oriented and who don't want to take time to learn HTML, CSS, jQuery, and a bunch of other standards, languages, and procedures that are essential for anyone who wants to build a modern website. It's also for any developer who wants to get a website off to a fast start. There are significant differences between Muse and Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver's strengths are in the development of large and complex sites. Muse is the perfect choice for a highly designed site that consists mainly of static pages. Dreamweaver provides a code view that allows users who are familiar with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript to write and edit their own code. Muse doesn't. Muse can automatically update structural elements of the site when the user adds a page. Dreamweaver doesn't do that. The differences don't make one program better than the other, but they do illustrate that for any given project, one program is more appropriate than the other. Muse is only two years old, but it's already been completely rewritten. Adobe does that with its applications occasionally to ensure that they are supported by the most modern coding techniques and to update the user interface. What's uncommon is that this rewrite was for an application that's been around for just two years. In preparing this review, I used Muse to create a multi-page site that is optimized for desktop systems, tablets, and phones. The way Muse handles responsive website design differs from the way most designers work. Now, it might be good to define what's meant by responsive design. Many sites are intended for use on desktop systems where relatively wide screens are the norm. Tablet screens are generally more narrow, and phone screens are, well, downright skinny. What works well on a desktop 
would be unwieldy or unusable on a phone. Viewing a widescreen website on a narrow screen device usually results in one of two undesirable effects. Either the user must scroll left and right to see all of the content, or the text is rendered so small that nobody can read it. Creating a responsive website allows the site to determine the width of the device it's being viewed on and then deliver the appropriate content. The traditional method used for responsive website design involves a complex series of divisions in the code, along with what are called media query statements and some specialized cascading style sheets for each device type. Although this is the preferred method, it requires a considerable amount of planning by the developer and a deep knowledge of coding techniques. If you're developing a large responsive website in Dreamweaver, that's probably the approach you'll use. Muse, though, is designed to be used by people who are familiar with products such as InDesign or Photoshop, and it's intended for use with smaller sites. A site with a dozen or two dozen pages wouldn't benefit much from the traditional approach because the amount of time involved in defining and coding would be excessive. Muse users can benefit from visually based design and layout. Everything moves a lot faster that way. A Muse user will simply start by creating a website that's designed for one of the target devices. Some start with a desktop and then pare down the site for the smaller devices, while others start by placing the essential information on the phone or tablet version and then add information for the larger devices. What's different about the Muse approach is that you'll create two or three versions of the site depending on which devices you want to support. Now that sounds like a lot of work, but it's a lot less work than it sounds like. Be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You'll find a lot of screen images. You'll also find a short video. It's only about a minute and a half that explains one of Muse's major advantages. So my test website was designed initially for a desktop system. The pages are wide, and they're all based on a master page. Then I created a phone version. The most obvious differences are the shape of the pages, long and narrow, and the repositioned menu, text, and images. For a site with a few tens of pages, the process used by Muse is much faster than developing media queries and specialized cascading style sheets. When you add a new layout, you'll be offered the option to copy the site plan, in other words, the pages, and the page attributes, that would be the colors and things like that. After you've had Muse create the new layout, you need to update the master page or pages, I'll tell you more about those in a little bit, and then copy the content to the new layout. This is followed by sizing and positioning each element on the new layout, and once you've done that, you delete any components that aren't appropriate for that layout. So to add a tablet layout, if you've already created a desktop layout, you'd click the tablet button and choose whether you want to copy the site plan and whether you want to copy the site attributes. There's a third option, but because tablet and phone layouts often have no borders, copying what's called the browser fill probably isn't going to be required when developing smaller designs from a larger design. I mentioned master pages. These are pages that hold content that you want to appear on every page that's based on that master page. This isn't necessarily every page in the site, but it could be. 
You can define more than one master page if one section of the site needs to be different, or you can exempt any page from being based on the master page. Most people probably will want to use master pages because they maintain consistency throughout the site. For example, I designed a master page with a banner that contains the TechBiter Worldwide microphone and a little bit of text. At the bottom of the page, there's some footer text. The menu is also present on the master page. Other pages will start with the master page content, so it needs to be created only once, and any changes made to the master page affect all the pages on which they're based. Be sure to check out the demo website. It's linked from the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Anyone who has spent hours creating a menu and then painstakingly linking the menu to every page in the site will be astonished by how easy it is to create a menu in Muse. You can start with a pre-made widget, just drag the vertical or horizontal menu widget onto the master page. You'll need to spend a little time defining the colors, the typefaces, and other design elements, and you'll probably want to define the various button states, in other words, normal, click, and active. But after that, adding pages to the menu is just as easy as adding a page, literally. Each page in the site diagram displays a plus sign, actually several of them, one on the left, one on the right, and one below. Clicking the left or right plus sign will add a new page at the same level as the selected page. Left adds a page before, right adds a page after. Clicking the plus sign below the page creates a sub-page to the selected page. The next part, though, is kind of magic. Muse adds the new page to the menu or submenu without any additional effort on your part. You'll find a little video, it's only about a minute and a half long, on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, shows exactly how that works. As far as defining the menu itself, you just select the options for the overall menu. That includes whether you want an icon to appear with each menu item, and whether you want the menu to display only top-level pages or all pages. And once you've defined the settings that apply to the entire menu, you'll apply the color, typeface, and state information to the buttons, with Edit Together selected, changes made to one item affect all like items. There are a lot of wow features in here. The TechBiter Worldwide website uses some non-standard typefaces. Now, by non-standard, I mean they're not available by default in web browsers. That's been one of the greatest frustrations for designers who have moved from print to website work. In print, the number of typefaces available is all but unlimited. On the web, though, about a dozen typefaces are safe. Safe means they can be assumed to be present on most browsers. And that has to cover Windows machines, Apple machines, and Linux machines. For the past several years, typekits have made it possible to use other typefaces, but the process hasn't been exactly easy because it involves first finding a typeface that can be used legally on the web, then you have to create one typekit for each variant of the typeface, normal, bold, italic, bold, italic, and possibly many others such as light, ultralight, heavy, black, extended, and a whole bunch more. Then, the designer has to create the cascading stylesheet code that makes the typefaces available in the various browsers, and that requires some very complex code. There's an example of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. With Muse and Adobe Creative Cloud, 
comes the ability to use web fonts, and it is a very welcome addition. Select the typeface you want from hundreds that are provided, synchronize the typeface with your desktop system, and use the typeface. Can't get any easier than that. When you publish or upload the website, the typefaces and all of the code required to use the typefaces go right along. There's a widgets library that provides access to compositions such as slideshows, contact forms, and sliding panels. There are also some various social media functions. In most cases, using these is about as easy as selecting one from a list and dragging it out onto the page. Some of the more complex widgets, the slideshows for example, will offer you some options to personalize the appearance, and you'll need of course to select the images that you want to use in that kind of presentation. Muse does the rest though, including making the thumbnails, handling all the transitions, and more. The bottom line for Adobe Muse is five cats. Muse makes highly designed, responsive websites easy. Now, it's important to understand one thing about Muse. Although it may be the perfect tool for the site that contains 30 or 40 or 50 web pages that are relatively static, it would be a horrible choice for a complex site with hundreds of pages. That's what Dreamweaver is for. But if your site is the type of site that Muse was designed for, and particularly if you're a visual designer already familiar with InDesign or Photoshop, you are going to be delighted to have this in your toolkit. You'll find additional details on the Adobe website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Have you heard of Tor? Tor is the onion router, and it is many-layered, just like an onion. And using it to browse the web will have several effects. First, it may allow you to avoid being followed by commercial sites. Second, it will slow your browsing somewhat. And third, it may cause the National Security Agency to develop an interest in what you're doing. The Tor project provides free software that enables online anonymity. It is used in some countries to get around internet censorship by directing internet traffic through a series of several thousand network relays that are operated by volunteers around the globe. The intent is to hide a user's location and to obscure the websites they visit. As with most security and privacy applications, Tor isn't foolproof. Although it's more difficult for monitoring software to trace traffic back to the user, it's not impossible. Still, a formerly top-secret NSA document characterizes Tor as the king of high-secure, low-latency internet anonymity, and it says there are no contenders for the throne in waiting. Onion routing simply refers to the multiple layers of encryption that the system uses. Tor starts by encrypting the data from the sender, and that includes encrypting the destination IP address. Then it encrypts the data again and again. Unlike standard internet protocol procedures, Tor doesn't try to find the fastest route between two locations. Instead, packets are sent through Tor relays that are selected randomly. This is the primary reason why communications through Tor is somewhat slower than it is with open connections. Packet decryption also happens in successive steps, with each relay decrypting enough of the information to forward it to the next relay in the series. 
The layer that passes the packet to the destination computer decrypts the innermost layer of the packet. Because the routing itself is obscured within several layers of encryption, there is no single location within Tor that can be tapped to capture the traffic. But if the NSA wants to examine your communications, they'll probably find a way to do it. There are reports that the agency targets outdated versions of Firefox browsers, for example. And of course, if your computer is compromised, nothing you do is safe, secret, or secure. There's also some exposure at what's called the border. I'll come back to the border in a moment. Tor dates back to 2002, and you may see an irony here. It was created under the auspices of the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory. The Electronic Frontier Foundation provided financial support for the Tor project in 2004 and 5, but it is now maintained as a 501c3 nonprofit research education organization. Tor still has some financial support by the U.S. government in the form of the U.S. State Department and the National Science Foundation, which are major contributors. In fact, about 80% of the project's 2012 budget came from the U.S. government, and most of the remainder of the $2 million budget that year came from the Swedish government. There are a few non-governmental organizations and thousands of individuals who also contribute. But what about this threat at the border that I mentioned? Well, Tor doesn't try to inhibit monitoring of traffic at the network's boundaries, in part because it can't. So data packets are vulnerable when they enter or exit the Tor network. Even so, the technology is considerably more secure than standard virtual private networks. More than five years ago, though, a Swedish security consultant proved that he could capture usernames and passwords from Tor users by surveilling the Tor exit nodes. The consultant, Dan Eggerstad, said that if someone knows where the Tor nodes are hosted, the data streams can be compromised. As for finding the Tor servers, Eggerstad says there are some nodes that cost thousands of dollars every month just to host because they're using so much bandwidth. That raises the question, at least in his mind, as to who's operating them. Who would pay for this and be anonymous, he asks. Tor has been targeted by the NSA. It has been targeted by the British equivalent of the NSA, which is the GCHQ. Tor helps people in countries with repressive regimes gain access to information that the government wants to suppress. Tor has been used to spread libelous statements. Tor is used by criminals in the process of selling drugs or stolen credit card information. Okay, so as with most tools, it can be used with good intent or bad. The Electronic Frontier Foundation dismisses the illegal uses, saying that criminals are obviously willing to break laws, and therefore they already have many options that provide better privacy than Tor does. And the EFF highlights Tor's use in supporting freedom of speech and providing protection for whistleblowers. So if you want to give Tor a try, you'll find a link to the Tor browser on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Versions are available for Apple's OS X, Microsoft Windows, and Linux. It actually runs on a modified version of the Mozilla Firefox ESR web browser. And it comes with the Tor button, Tor launcher, the NoScript utility, HTTPS everywhere, and the Tor proxy. Running the Tor browser automatically starts all Tor processes and routes traffic through the Tor network. All cookies and browsing history are deleted when you close the browser. 
The installation instructions note that you'll need at least 80 megabytes of free disk space in the location you choose to install the application, and then you have two choices about where to install. First, you can make it readily available by installing on your computer. The recommendation is that you put it on the desktop. Or second, if you want to move the Tor browser to a different computer or limit the traces that you leave behind, you can install it on a USB disk. I decided initially that the safer option would be number two, so I installed it on a small 2GB thumb drive. Following the installation, you'll have a directory that includes a link to start the Tor browser, as well as several other directories, one of which contains that special version of Firefox. The first time you open the Tor browser, you have two options, connect and configure. In most cases, the right choices will simply be connect. You would choose configure only if your computer's internet connection doesn't allow connection to a Tor server. That would happen only if your connection is censored in some way. The connection process takes a while. In my case, it was about 90 seconds. Next, you'll see a page that tells you the browser is properly configured to use Tor. And from there, you can enter a URL or use the search function. I clicked an option that said test the Tor network settings. If you do that, you'll see another confirmation page. This one shows your apparent IP address, that is the address that is visible on the public internet, and a link that offers more information about the current relay you're using. Well, of course, I clicked that button, and I ended up being a bit amused. First, I found that the Tor network made it appear that I'm in Romania, not the United States. That didn't particularly amuse me. This is what I found amusing. The exit relay I was connected to was called Edward Snowden 1. I found that amusing because the SSID I use for the guest network on my own router is Snowden 2.4G guest for the 2.4 GHz connection or Snowden 5.0G guest for the 5 GHz connection. Okay, so I'm easily amused. When I loaded the TechBiter Worldwide website, it loaded a little more slowly than normal, but considering everything that's happening in the background, it was surprisingly fast. You might occasionally encounter an unintended consequence, though. When I visited Microsoft.com, I got a page in a foreign language. Why? Well, it turned out it was the Romanian version of Microsoft's website. After all, that's where I appeared to be at the time. Later, when I had connected through another exit point, this one showing me to be in the Netherlands, I was presented with a site written in Dutch. Because Tor installs its own special version of Firefox, your installed version of the browser, as well as any other browsers you use, will be unaffected. And what that means is you can install the Tor browser, either on the computer, or as I did on a USB thumb drive, without concern that it will affect any of your existing programs. You can read more about Tor in an article on the German site Panorama. There's a link to an article called NSA Targets the Privacy Conscience. It's in English and it makes several claims that are rather interesting. You'll find those on the TechBinder Worldwide website, and also if you follow the link to the German site. In short circuits, looks like the winner is going to be tablets. Remember how popular the first portable computers were? By portable, I mean that 23.5 pound Osborne 1 back in 1981. Luggable. These things were the size of a catalog case. 
Speaking of which, remember when people actually carried catalog cases? The notebook or laptop models became increasingly popular. They threatened to overtake desktop systems, but now these revolutionary systems are combined with desktops as traditional PCs. And next year, tablets are poised to outsell them. According to Gartner Research, about 308,000 traditional PCs will be sold this year, followed closely by 256,000 tablets. But in 2015, tablets will take the lead, 321,000 to 317,000. The sales of traditional computers have been falling for years as tablets have become more powerful and have had features added that allow them to be substitutes for desktops and notebooks. Particularly note the recently released update to Microsoft's Surface series. For many people, tablets are sufficient. But don't look for desktop systems to disappear. Those who need huge amounts of RAM will probably still need desktop or notebook systems. But this problem probably will be solved soon, just as tablet docking stations have eliminated the disk space limitations of tablets. Plug a tablet into a docking station, and it can power one or more huge monitors, access many terabytes of disk space, and make use of a mouse and keyboard. Look for that to happen fairly soon with memory. Gartner says it expects consumer preference to be for tablets with larger screens, and because the market for tablets is maturing, prices are likely to become a selling point. Oh, be sure to check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's a picture of the old Osborne one there, along with some history. Important notice. Domain service notice. That was the subject line on a message I received this week. Well, the TechBiter Worldwide website domain registration is due for an update, so I glanced at the message, even though it wasn't from my registrar. Complete and return by fax, the message said, listing a phone number in Buffalo, New York. Then it showed the registration information, name, address, phone number. All of that's readily available from anyone via a Whois search. As a courtesy to domain name holders, the message began, hold it right there, I'm always wary of something that is being done as a courtesy. Well, as a courtesy, we are sending you this notification for your business domain name search engine registration. This letter is to inform you that it's time to send in your registration and save. Now, you see what they did there? It's a search engine registration, not a domain name registration. Search engines don't have registration procedures, so this is obviously nothing more than an offer to sell me something that's worthless. Failure to complete your domain name search engine registration, the message continued, may result in cancellation of this offer, making it difficult for your customers to locate you on the web. It went on to explain how privatization allows the consumer choice when registering, and that I would be buying search engine submission. In other words, if I pay them, they'll send my domain name to a bunch of search engines. I could do that myself in a few minutes and with no cost, whatever. So what do they want me to send? Well, for one year, they'd like $75. Two years, $119. Five years for $199. Ten years, oh, that's the most recommended option, $295. And new, a lifetime, limited time offer, best value, $499. 
$499. Wow, I could buy a lifetime registration for just $500. At the bottom of the message, there was some smaller text, but large enough, though, that the Federal Trade Commission can't go after the offer as fraud. Yeah, that means neither the FTC nor I can call the offer fraudulent. But I would have to question why a legitimate business would send some messages from one domain, other messages from a second domain, and still more from various other domains. I mean, if you're on the up and up, wouldn't you just use your own business email address to send solicitations? In a word, beware. If you're a bit puzzled by Windows 8.1 or Windows 7 or Office 2013 or any other Microsoft product, the Microsoft Developers Network has some suggestions for you and links to free electronic publications you can download. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to more than 100 new free ebooks, Microsoft step by step guides, and some resource guides. The writer of the blog, Microsoft Senior Sales Excellence Manager Eric Lingman, also includes links to many electronic publications that he's mentioned in previous blogs. You'll find almost 300 publications in total. Some are in various ebook formats such as EPUB or Mobi, others are in PDF format. So if you're looking for quick answers, this could be a good place to start. And Ligman has a challenge for you. Wouldn't it be fun, he said, if we could surpass the one million download mark within just a week again? Of course, that would also be a great talking point for the Microsoft sales staff. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.